0: There we go. Matthew chapter 5 from verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar...
1: And welcome, I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here. Great to have you with us in our series on the Gospel of Matthew called The Way of Jesus. So if this is your first time at church or you're a regular member coming along here, so good to have you here with us as we open Jesus' words. And this section, as Jacob said before, is probably one of the most famous sections of teaching in all the Gospels. It's had a massive influence on modern social justice movements, on the way even our laws are formed. Jesus' short sermon here has had a global impact on people who even are skeptical of his claim to be God and man and yet cannot deny the power of his words. So it's a great text that we get to dive into here. Um, but just before we kind of get into that, I just wanted to say a big thanks to all the groups that had me around this week, which was all the groups. So it was great to get around to all of them. And one thing, one thing just to comment on that, that struck me as I was uh, visiting each of the groups each night, that you guys have amazing community group leaders. And going around to the groups, there is a real sense of genuine community there and of people who really, you would have nothing to do with each other were it not for the fact that you share a love for Jesus and has brought together this community. So I just encourage you, if you get the chance, just to thank your community group leaders a little bit later on, just personally, for the love that they just sow into the groups week after week. It was great to be able to just dip in and see. But we're diving into Jesus' words here. And what he's going to lay out here in this second part of the Sermon on the Mount is that the call to follow Jesus is a call to radical obedience that means more than law. That radical obedience is more than just law. It requires a deeper obedience than just outward appearances. I was reminded of this principle years ago when I was in the mood for watching some quality TV, but instead I watched RBT. And if you've ever seen this show, if you, if you haven't seen the show, let me introduce you to the concept. If you feel bad about yourself, you get to watch other people's train wreck lives and feel a little bit better about yourself, even if just for a night. There's also a little bit of the game show kind of what's behind door number two sort of thing as you work out, oh, is this person really drunk or do they just, are oh, they a bit weird. Um, and then like the, the little meter goes off and then it's ping, .07, and you're like, yes, you're done. And there's a, so there's a kind of a, you know, a sick joy to it as well. But I remember watching one particular episode and there was a man in his probably early 20s and he was caught way over the limit. And so they'd taken him back to the station for processing. The sergeant comes out, you know, kind of announces to him the charges that are being laid against him and the potential penalties and outcomes of these charges. And he's, his head's in his hands, he's shaking his head. And you're waiting for, you can see outwardly that he's distressed. So you're waiting for just the verbal, I guess, affirmation of his kind of Uh, you know, his remorse. But then he says, like, I'm just so devo. Like, my friends do this every week and they never get caught. And the sergeant is, I mean, he would have seen, you know, so many cases like this before, but he's almost taken aback by it. And he sits him down and he says, mate, like, you could have killed yourself. You could have killed innocent people. Like, that's what's really at stake here. And the guy, just, he cannot wrap his head around it, partly because he was way over the limit. But it also revealed his heart that his biggest concern was that he seemed to be unfairly done by because his friends had done it week in and week out and he happened to be the one that was caught. And it's kind of shocking to watch, in a way, to watch someone miss the point of the law so drastically the point of those laws is not that you would avoid fines. The reason you don't drink and drive is not so that you won't get fined or lose your license or suffer some kind of inconvenience or maybe lose your job. The point of those laws is to protect human life, yours and other people's. But it struck me watching the show that laws cannot change hearts, can they? They can restrain behavior, and they can restrain the behavior of the unrepentant so that they don't do more damage than they possibly could. But laws do not have the power to transform or reform the heart or renew the heart, do they? And what we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus is going to say just that. That what he calls of his followers is not mere external obedience and restraint by restriction of law, but a deeper heart transformation. That they would understand that God's heart in giving laws to his people was not that they would just be merely outwardly obedient, but that they would, as we saw last week, hunger and thirst for righteousness. That they would long to follow God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'm going to pray that we'll see that in God's word this afternoon as we open it up. Let's pray. God, we praise you that in your word you reveal your heart to us, that you love us, that you are for us, and that even while we were enemies you sent Christ to die for us, that we might be brought back in a relationship with you. We pray that we would see that breaking your laws is not so much about breaking laws, but breaking your heart, and that you call us to love as you have loved us, and may we see this in Jesus' words this afternoon. Amen. So the context for today's passage is, as we all said, in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a follower of Jesus, Matthew, who wrote down an account of Jesus' life, his teaching, his ministry, his death, and finally his resurrection. And we're in a section here called the Sermon on the Mount because it's a sermon that Jesus gave on a mountain. But they just say mount. I guess if you've got to say it over and over again, you try and trim it up and save some syllables. But here, we're right at the beginning, and we're just after the introductory section. And the first section last week was a section called the Beatitudes. It's all these blessed bees. blessed be those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And really that functions as like an overture for the Sermon on the Mount. If you've ever been to the opera, and I haven't, But I've been told that if you go, you might get what's called an overture, which is at the beginning of an opera, there's a piece of music that will kind of give you an introduction to many of the pieces of music that you're going to hear throughout the opera. Is that right? I mean, someone who's like classically trained can sort of can correct me on that. And the the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is an overture. It's introducing you all these themes that are going to come back around as Jesus dives deeper into what it means to follow him. And so we're going to see those things reverberate throughout the Sermon on the Mount as we travel through it. And Jesus kicks into gear with the first one by starting on talking on the Bible that his ancient hearers had, which he's going to call the prophets and the law. It was a way of summing up the whole of the Bible, the prophets and the law. And this is what he says on it. In Matthew 5:17 to 18, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus comes saying, look, I know I'm going to say some radical things and some things that you might not be used to hearing, but I just want you to know from the start, I'm not here to throw out the Bible. I'm not here to cast out everything that you've heard in the Law and the Prophets. Actually, I'm here to double down on it and to fulfill it. Now, what does this mean? To understand it, we need to see what Jesus says next. Look what he says in 19 to 20. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments... And teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, when I say I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, don't don't mistake me when you hear that. I'm not saying now we're done with that and now you can live however you want. No, he says, I'm going to teach you some things and, and if anyone even minimizes those commands, I tell you, they are not fit to come into the kingdom of heaven to be one of my people. But he also says something that if you are an ancient hero, would have shocked you. He says, unless your righteousness, your good deeds, your standard of good works exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot be one of my people. Now, that would have shocked them because for them, the scribes and the Pharisees, were like the religious school captains of the day. They were the keenest, the most fastidious, the most committed religious people. Everyone's thinking of those kids right now at school, weren't you? But they were the most committed. They took God's law so seriously that they even made up all these sub-laws to attach to those laws just so they could be especially obedient. They took God's word literally and seriously. And Jesus says, I will tell you what, unless you are more righteous than them, you don't have a shot. And to give you some modern sense of how shocking that is, you can think of it in this way. The world record holder for the marathon currently is Eliud Kipchoge. And he ran a project with Nike to try and run a marathon, so 42 kilometers in under two hours. To break that down, that means every kilometer is sub-three minutes. Now, to give you some context for how fast that is, they set up in a mall a treadmill surrounded by crash mats And they were offering people the chance to try and run at Kipchoge's pace for just not one K, just one minute. And scarcely a person could do it. If you've ever tried to run a a three-minute K, you will know it's just bolting. It's just going as hard as you can for as long as you can. And he did that for two hours. Now imagine someone said to you, unless your pace exceeds Kipchoge's, you have no chance of entering the kingdom of God. Just thinking about it makes you feel sick and exhausted all at the same time without having actually done anything. Now, that's how they would have felt as soon as Jesus said that. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And every person listening at that point would have been like, well, I guess we're all out there. But Jesus is saying this to be provocative, and he does it the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount. He knows how to say things to get people's attention. He wasn't a softly spoken, mealy-mouthed preacher. He says things because he wants to be heard. But what they don't know is that this standard of righteousness is the very standard that Jesus is going to achieve on their behalf. That he will, in fact, win the righteousness that they need to live and die the death that they deserve so that there might be a swap. A righteousness that they did not achieve or attain. That's why Paul, who himself was a Pharisee who came to follow Jesus, writes this in a letter to the Romans. In Romans 3, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says because of Jesus, there is now a way to be declared righteous, even though you're a sinner. A righteousness that doesn't come from your own obedience, but from Jesus' obedience. And notice what he says here. He says, the law and the prophets testify to this. He's saying the whole Old Testament pointed to the fact that there was a standard of righteousness that God required that we were unable to meet. And it pointed forward to a day when someone would come along who would fulfill that standard and die in our place on our behalf to take our sin that we might be credited righteous apart from our own works. That's why Paul says, Now a righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. There is a way to be right with God that does not require your own works. It was a standard that we could not meet. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It was all pointing to Jesus, that there would be one who would meet God's standard for righteousness and who would be a sacrifice for our sin. Now just sit with that thought for a second. That if you know Jesus, that you will stand one day before a holy God, before whom no excuses can be made, because he sees the very intentions of our hearts and minds, and he knows you to your depths and to your core, and your intentions and all that you have done, and yet, because of Jesus, will say, Righteous. You will stand before a holy God and be welcomed home because of Jesus. That's the truth of the gospel. That's why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Unless you know that Jesus has won that righteousness for you, you will never know relationship with God. But what he says here is clever also, and that he has a double meaning. When he says you must have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, in one way he's saying God's standard of righteousness is just so far beyond our best efforts that even your best folks won't make it. But there's a second meaning to this. He's saying once you understand that you cannot fulfill God's standard, but you need forgiveness and renewal, it actually paves a way for a deeper kind of obedience. It's a strange irony that grace leads to deeper obedience than threat. Let me illustrate it this way. Years ago, I was making small talk at a wedding, as people do. I was uh, was sitting next to the father of the bride, and um, it may not surprise you that we had very little in common. And so I was throwing him just question after question just to see if something would stick, if we could get onto some some kind of topic where we could just mine into. And he was giving me nothing back either. So was just, I, was just, I was 20, 30 questions deep. And eventually got to the fact that he used to be a Qantas pilot. I was like, I know, I know one fact about Qantas, and I'm pretty sure I got it from Rain Man. And I said to him, I said, hey, I hear that Qantas has the best safety record out of any airline. Now, before you fall asleep in this thrilling retelling of winning small talk about airline safety, he, did actually, he said something that was super interesting. He said, yeah, there's a reason why Qantas has the best safety record. They have a no-fire policy. What that means is if you make a mistake, no matter how culpable or how incompetent that mistake was, if you admit it and you alert people to it before a plane takes off, you will never be fired. And so what that means is every error or critical mistake gets reported and it delays flights and it costs money, but it means that they actually get onto things. And he was saying, ironically, other airlines think that if you kind of hold the sword of Damocles over people and you say, you know, if you make one single mistake, then you're out, then you'll get the most competent, the most fastidious people you possibly can, but it doesn't work because what happens is people make mistakes and then they cover them up and then people die because of it grace leads to more than threat. And Jesus here is saying, grace actually is going to lead to a deeper obedience than threat. See, the righteousness that the Pharisees had was very much about outward appearances and religious posturing rather than genuine deep heart change. In fact, Jesus is going to call them out again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. He's going to call them things like whitewashed tombs. They look outwardly very religious and very pure, but inwardly are full of death. And their focus on their righteousness is the belief that one day they will meet God and they'll be approved because they were good enough and they kept God's standards. And Jesus is saying, this in the end is just false posturing. It's not any kind of righteousness. In fact, he's going to call them out later in Matthew as hypocrisy. Jesus is saying, no, once you understand that you cannot meet God's standard of righteousness, that you are just a sinner who depends on his grace, it will transform you in such a way that it will lead you to a deeper obedience than the Pharisees. One that's actually from the heart. Because here's the truth of it. If you know that God has already accepted you, and that you don't have to do something in order for him to accept you, then the only possible reason to do it is for the sheer joy of it. The only reason to possibly obey God is because he has said it for your good and he is trustworthy and he is the one who laid down the life of his son for you. And if he doesn't want you to do this just so that you can be right with him, why would he tell you to do it unless he loves you? Grace will lead to a deeper obedience than what the Pharisees offered. Theirs was shallow, superficial and self-righteous and hypocritical in the end. Jesus says, unless you have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, one that comes from Jesus, and one that leads to a deeper obedience, you won't be my people. And to illustrate the point, he drives into the first practical issue. Look what he draws up. He draws up maybe the most common of the Ten Commandments, Matthew five twenty-one to 26 it says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him with court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penalty. Jesus starts with a command from the Ten Commandments they're all familiar with, do not murder. And he says, and this this Sermon on the Mount is marking out what kind of people he's going to call to himself. And he is saying to them, I want my people who follow me to be more than just not murderers. (laughs) He has a, a higher ambition for his people than just that they would not murder. It should be the case that churches out the front should be able to put up something a little bit more than like, come to church, we're not murderers, which sounds incredibly sus, right? (laughs) Jesus is saying that his people are not just to be marked by the fact that they do not murder. In fact, he's saying that God's heart in this command goes much deeper than just not shedding blood. See, even in our culture, it's common to justify yourself by saying, well, at least I'm not a murderer, even when we're just saying it for hyperbole. It's a command that's easy to feel good about. But Jesus says, it's not enough to not be a murderer. He says, it's no good to be someone who does not murder, and yet you are full of contempt. He says, if you are even angry with your brother, and you say, fool, which means nothing, or worthless, in the translation, he says it's as bad as murder. Now here you might be saying, this is a little bit out of order, isn't it? Connecting something so everyday, like insulting someone with something as significant as a crime like murder. It's, I mean, I, I get that he's being provocative and that sort of thing, but it's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? But is it really? See, look at what he's talking about. Jesus isn't talking about all anger here. He's talking about something very specific, a very specific type of anger. You might call it contempt. He clarifies it by saying it three ways. He says anyone who is angry with his brother, anyone who insults his brother, and anyone who says, you fool." This is a way of being angry towards someone because they are somehow less than you. It's what you might call contempt. This is not righteous anger against sin and injustice. This is an anger pointed towards someone to say, you are nothing. You are somehow less than me. And Jesus is saying, at its heart, this is where murder begins, by seeing another life as less valuable or even expendable. That there is a connection between contempt that when it is full-grown, will be murder if it's not restrained. John Owen, the 17th century theologian, writes, Sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises to entice or attempt, might it have its own course, it will go to the utmost of that sin. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head? Sin always aims at the utmost. It will do as much damage as it can. And Jesus is saying here, contempt is of the same species as murder, one in its embryonic state and one full grown. He says, when God gave the command not to murder, what he was aiming at was something more significant than just not shedding blood. Contempt has the same dehumanizing heart as murder. The Old Testament law was not adequately satisfied just by not shedding blood. It was meant to be a call to regard others' lives as equally valuable to yours that all equally were made in the image of God, that we are not allowed to say you are somehow less or worse than me because you're from a different people group, because you think a different way, because you look a different way, because you act a different way. And Jesus is going to say, actually, my people are called to go much further. You're going to be called in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount to even love people who are enemies. That is not people who you hate, but people who hate you. You're going to be called to love them because radical obedience is more than law. So let me apply this in this way. The first one is this. If you are unconvinced about who Jesus is, just know that he is offering to you unmitigated forgiveness. See, Jesus here says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And yet he lived a life and died a death, so that you, though you didn't meet God's standards, may be right with Him forever. It is an incredible offer. I wonder, have you accepted it? Or do you trust that something about you is going to be what God will justify in the future? Maybe you grew up in a church context. Maybe you've gone to church for a long time. And it's often the case that because we live in a culture where so few people go to church, it could be possible to make the mistake that just because I like church or even like Christians, that I must be one of God's people. But Jesus here is saying, unless you know him and believe that he has won the righteousness, you need to stand before a holy God, that there is no hope. So my prayer for you is if you're investigating this, that you would know and be sure today where you stand before God. We would love to help you with this to pray with you over this, to even leave, leave a comment on the cards afterwards that we might meet with you so that you might be sure about where you stand before God because his offer of forgiveness is unbelievable. And if you're not sure, why not get sure today? But If you are a follower of Jesus, the first implication of what Jesus says here is that you are not to despise other people. That he's called for his people. It's not enough that we would just be a bunch of not murderers and yet filled with contempt and judgment and self-righteous anger, we should be a people who are marked by compassion. Humans have an incredible propensity for looking down on others, don't we? I was reminded of this when I was speaking to years ago a prison chaplain. who was talking about when he was called in after an incident where a prisoner was assaulted because other prisoners believed he was guilty of a crime that even in prison is looked down on. And he remarked, this chaplain remarked, Isn't it strange that even in prison there's someone to look down on? We have an incredible capacity to find ways to look down on other people. To see others as somehow less than us. To have a standard that we can meet so that we can look down on others who don't meet it. And Jesus says this is not the way you should live. We are called not to hate others, to insult others, to look down on others, to look at others with contempt. And so the question would be, who, who do you look down on? Who do you find yourself talking about in a way that it seems like they are somehow less of a person than you? You look down on lazy people, lazy people at work, lazy people in the church, people from the wrong theological pedigree, people who vote wrong, people who don't know real art or music, Christian music, the morons who can't drive, the morons who run this country, the morons who are ruining this country? Who are the people that you look at and think, they are not like me and in a bad way? See, the the test for, for contempt is when you look at someone and think, I could never be as fill in the blank as them. To look at someone and think, there's something uniquely bad or different about them to where I can't identify with them. I can't understand what they're like because they're obviously a different type of person to me. Do you know there's an old Christian phrase that says, there but for the grace of God go I? And the meaning behind the phrase is that if you look out on anyone who you'd consider to be contemptible, the right view, if you understand the gospel correctly, is to look at them and think, do you know what? I could be in every way just like them if it weren't for the restraining grace of God. That there is no difference between I share a humanity with them and I share a sinful nature with them that means given the right circumstances and time, I could be every bit just like them. The gospel means that you cannot look down on people because the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. There is none righteous, not even one. And the only two types of people in the world are those who know they need forgiveness and those who don't. We are called not to contempt, to look with contempt on others. But the second one is, I don't know if you saw it there, we are called to be people who reconcile with others. You know, sometimes there is a sick delight in holding someone in contempt and then never offering, the op- offering them the opportunity to reply. Isn't that the case? You can, you can be so bitter towards someone and yet at the same time unwilling to reconcile with them or give them a chance to answer their case. Sometimes we can get into the sick delight of savoring our contempt and almost living off us, because for a small moment, it makes you feel righteous and above someone else. You can rehearse mentally how you would dress them down verbally and, and lay out for all to see all their flaws and their sin. And in a way, it gives us a sense of our own righteousness or pride. And Jesus says this is not to be the way of his people. In fact, he says, if you are out of reconciliation with someone and you call yourself a follower of Jesus it's probably a good idea not to be back at church next week until you've reconciled with them. Because if you hold something against someone and it's not significant enough to actually bring up with them, then you either need to let it go or you need to talk to them about it. But here he says, drawing on an ancient sort of ritual that they were doing, he says, look, before you even go to the sanctuary, make sure you reconcile with your brother or sister because we are not to be people who hold others in contempt. We are to be people who reconcile. The gospel calls us to radical obedience. Not to mere avoiding don'ts like do not murder. Radical obedience is more than law. And wouldn't it magnify Christ to be a people who did not look down on anyone? Imagine how attractive Jesus' church would be if we radiated the kind of humility and grace that Jesus talks about here. Where people had a, a palpable sense that this is a community of people who can hold their differences with others. It's still okay to argue about right and wrong but without the sense of self-righteous judgment, without a sense of contempt for the other, who are kind and generous in our assumptions of people, who are agents of reconciliation in in an age of division, the kind of people that others trusted because you never pile on when people are gossiping at work. What a people we would be, how happy in Christ we would be, how glorified God would be in a community that lived this out. Let's pray that he'll make us into these kind of people. Father, we thank you that you are radically merciful, radically gracious, and that you lead us to be the same. We pray that we would live in step with the gospel, that we would not forget that it is incompatible with the gospel to look on others with contempt, that instead we would see a shared humanity, a shared sinful brokenness, and a shared need for the love of Jesus and for the righteousness that can only be found in him. Father, we just thank you for his death on our behalf, that we might be made new. We just pray that piece by piece, you'd be putting us back together as people. That we'd be people who look with compassion on others, who disagree with generosity, and who radiate the love of Christ. Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.